It's a common response. We can't achieve socialism because of human nature. In fact, for some people, we can't change anything much at all. People are naturally too greedy, too focused on number one to fight for a better world. Confusingly, according to who you talk to, human nature is both the reason why revolution is impossible and why revolution would inevitably degenerate to produce a new Stalinist dictatorship. The idea that everyone has to look out for themselves is reinforced in many ways in our daily lives. We see the glorification of the rich in all forms of media, with the message that greed is good. And we experience the competition built into capitalism where we need to win to succeed. It varies from sport at every level, where winning is everything, to year 12 exams, which don't measure knowledge, but rank young people against their peers, a ladder of individual success. Every time you apply for a job, you're competing with other workers. Every time you get seriously sick, you're on a waiting list, which encourages the idea that it's other sick people who are standing between you and treatment. If the argument that human nature is a barrier to socialism, or indeed any significant social change for the better, is correct, then we'd be in a very miserable place. But everywhere we look, we see rebellion and revolt, from strikes to the magnificent mass rallies for Palestine all around the world. So, is there such a thing as human nature? And if there is, what does it mean for the struggle for a better world? You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. I want to break this talk into three sections. The first that looks at the historical record, the second at the contradictions in daily life that challenge the idea of an essential human nature, and finally, looking at what Karl Marx said on the matter. The simplest argument from the historical record is this, that humans as a species lived in rough equality for something like a quarter of a million years. We know that this is the case for indigenous people on this continent for at least 60,000 of those years. Broadly speaking, people everywhere lived in small groups, foraging and hunting and sharing their food, along with their oral traditions and culture. There were multiple ways in which these societies ensured that no one was greedy and upset the collaboration that made survival possible. So in some clans, for example, the hunter who had killed the prey was the last, not the first to eat. Before European invasion distorted their way of life, the Kivalir Mute people, also called the Caribou Inuit, who lived to the west of what is now called Hudson Bay in northern Canada, survived with no one amassing a surplus. No one claimed exclusive rights to the land. Traps and weirs were communal property. During famines, all food was shared with neighbours. I'm drawing on information from the very valuable book, The Creation of Inequality, written by two American professors, Kent Flannery and Joyce Marcus, 
and published by Harvard University Press. Flannery and Marcus write about the Kivlarimute, and I quote, So crucial was food sharing that they used ridicule to prevent hoarding and greed. Troublemakers were given the silent treatment and might even be left behind when a camp moved. And different clans and tribes would use different mechanisms to achieve similar outcomes around the world. But the message was clear and understood for countless tens of thousands of years. Greed was far from good. It destabilised societies that faced a constant struggle to survive. Collaboration and sharing was key to survival. It's a way of life that Marx called primitive communism. But as Flannery and Marcus record, that inequality broke down gradually, at different speeds in different parts of the world, but broke down nonetheless. Now, there were no biological or DNA changes in humans to explain this. It wasn't something innate to us as humans. Instead, we need to look at material changes in human society, changes in the way that humans created the necessities of life, in the mode of production. Marx's close friend and collaborator, Frederick Engels, studied this process and in 1884 published a pamphlet on the subject called The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. And in essence, he argued that inequality arose as societies developed farming to the point where there was a surplus of food over and above the immediate needs of the people. This surplus needed to be accounted for, stored and eventually allocated, and a minority emerged within society to play this role, a role which gave them power over the rest of the population. Now Flannery and Marcus don't identify in their book as Marxists, but the book does give us a valuable and nuanced version of this analysis. They argue, as did Engels, that there was a material basis for the emergence of what they call rank, or hierarchy. But with the benefit of being able to draw on more than a century of further research, they paint a much more sophisticated picture of societies that gravitated between equality and inequality, with outcomes that varied across time and place. I'm going to take three of the examples they give to illustrate the point that the lust for inequality, power and wealth is far from being a universal human trait and that cultural norms developed according to the way in which societies evolved economically. The Chumash people lived on the coast of California, from what is today San Luis Obispo to Malibu Canyon, and they lived on the offshore islands nearby. For about 5,000 years, the record shows that they lived an egalitarian life, until around the years 500 to 700 AD which other people call the beginning of the Christian era. It was then that they invented long, sturdy boats that allowed them to catch bigger fish, transport more goods, and become traders in shell products, and become quite rich. By the time Spanish invaders arrived in the late 1700s, the Chumash had developed a system of village captains, and one of those captains would become the head chief. Now, it was a role that normally passed from father to son, or to a daughter or a sister, if no male was available, but the village had to approve that transfer. 
In other words, the development of a surplus, in this case not from agriculture, as Engels had written, but from seafaring, had led to a more structured society. But the process had taken a thousand years, and it had led to a society which had hierarchy, but in which the chief's power was far from absolute. It's also worth noting in passing that two to three men in each village dressed and worked as women, and one Spanish soldier recorded that they were, I quote, held in great esteem. In other words, what the Chumash would have experienced as their so-called human nature would have been quite different from what people think of it today. The growth of inequality was not a smooth or a one-way process. In other words, it wasn't natural. Among the Konyak Naga, who live in what is today the Indian state of Assam, society moved back and forth, or cycled, between egalitarianism and what Flannery and Marcus call rank society, societies with some form of hierarchy. They write, and I quote, Such was the nature of cycling that some Konyak villages had a mixture of institutions from achievement-based, in other words, broadly egalitarian, and rank society. A visit to such a village was like seeing a snapshot taken during the transition from one social system to another. Now, there's a complex set of situations that fed this instability, which I don't have time to go into here. But the essential point is, once again, that for the Naga there was no one natural normal society. The third example comes from southern Mesopotamia, now part of Iraq, some 5,000 years ago. Rich soils and plenty of water and irrigation from the Euphrates River saw a growth in agriculture and population. And on that basis, as Engels had argued, there emerged ruling classes who dominated the surplus food and for the first time in human history, seized private ownership of the land. They developed state apparatuses, including cruel, harsh justice systems and armies. Their subjects and slaves built cities and monuments. And because land and wealth was now held privately, it became important to ruling class men to control their wives, to ensure that they bore only their children, so wealth could be passed down from one generation to the next. An ancient inscription cited by Flannery and Marcus states, and I quote, The women of former days used to take two husbands, but the women today, if they attempted this, were stoned with stones. Sumer seems much more like our society today. Private wealth and substantial inequality, strong states with a monopoly of violence, and of course sexism. A product of human nature? If that were the case, humans might have lived like that everywhere for many thousands of years. Much of humanity has now lived in unequal class societies for millennia, after that long period of equality. But despite our social conditioning to compete, empathy and solidarity keep breaking through. In Australia today, there are 5.9 million people, that's about a quarter of the population, who volunteer, whether that's for sports or social clubs, 
faith groups or environmental projects. In other words, they donate their time and energy freely for the benefit of others. And then about 1 in 30 people donate blood. After the disastrous 2019 bushfires, Australian people donated $500 million to help rebuild homes and communities. More recently, around the country, hundreds of thousands have demonstrated for Palestine, taken part in vigils, signed petitions, lobbied politicians, spoken out in many ways. These are not the actions of people bought off by greed and self-interest. These are the actions of people standing in solidarity with strangers. Now, it's not surprising that Karl Marx saw the potential for struggle. His work is essentially a theory of global working class revolution. But it might come as a surprise that Marx did acknowledge the existence of human nature, just not in the way it's commonly thought about today. For Marx, our human nature is our nature as humans, as homo sapiens, as a species. And he argued that all species had what he called their species being, meaning the distinct needs and characteristics that are different from those of other species, including in the case of humans, those we're most closely related to, like the great apes. Humans need food, water and shelter. Before anything else, culture, religion, politics becomes possible. The species being of an echidna includes wandering around apparently randomly, sniffing for ants to eat. The species being of bees includes building complex and geometrically uh, complicated nests. But what makes us distinct as a species is that to survive, in order to live and to create the, and raise the next generation, we engage in conscious, thought-out collective behaviour to shape nature around us. So our nature as humans is to be collective, collaborative producers. We can organise to produce food and we can build complex structures. And unlike bees and echidnas, we can revolutionise again and again how we do so. The problem is that under capitalism, we have to work in order to survive, but we're robbed of our ability to control what we make, how we make it, and how those goods or services are used. That power lays with those who control capital, our employers, the bosses. Marx talked about this separation of workers from control over their work as alienation. And he made the point that because we have lost control of the process of collective production, which is after all what makes us human, that we have also become alienated from the environment and from each other. What Marx called, and I quote, the estrangement of man from man. That alienation helps generate individualism. So it's not our so-called natural greed and competitiveness that makes us chase a better paid job or a nicer home. Paradoxically, it's our powerlessness. But the workplace also brings us together as collectives. And the constant pressure from the bosses on workers to work harder, so-called smarter, longer, and if possible for less, generates struggle. 
In that collective struggle, we can get a glimpse of how life could be different. Collaborative, democratic and equal, where we respect and help each other. So there's a tug of war going on in our lives between the powerlessness and individualism fostered by capitalism and the collective struggle, ironically also fostered by capitalism. Who wins that tug of war depends on political clarity and organisation. It's not a given who will come out on top. That's why solidarity members take part in struggles today while arguing the ideas we need to beat capitalism, a rotten system, and bringing that all together into the building of a revolutionary organisation. If our class wins that tug of war and makes a revolution, Marx argued that the experience would help wash away what he called the muck of ages. Backward ideas like sexism, racism and transphobia will not disappear in their entirety straight away, but we will have overcome the powerlessness that makes those ideas seem attractive to many people and we will be in the process of destroying the material basis of inequality and poverty that drives people into the arms of the racists and the sexists. Along the way, having made that revolution, we will be reclaiming the primitive communism of our ancestors, but in a world that is so much richer, where everyone can live a decent life, a life of equality, sustainability and cooperation. In other words, we will have reclaimed our real human nature. Mm -hmm.